This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Albert Vinzel is off tonight, uh, so our HOA, our Hangout on Air, will resume next week, and also our uh, our new segment entitled What's in the Box. That'll return next week as well. Ian Robertson, of course, on the other side of the glass, twisting the knobs and dials. Uh, we have uh, a very um, amazing, interesting guest coming up in just a few moments. Peter Janney is uh, the author of Mary's Mosaic, the CIA Conspiracy to Murder John F. Kennedy, Mary Pinchot Meyer, and their vision for world peace, and we'll get to that conversation in uh, just a few moments. Uh, Just a reminder to get on up to the website, strangeplanet.ca. That's your portal to uh, all of my projects. Uh, Of course, the radio show, which you're listening to right now. Just go to the radio page, The Conspiracy Show, and take a moment uh, to sign up. Uh, Just click on the blue member area button. It's on the left-hand side. Click on that and register as a member. It's free, it's quick, and it's easy. And then once you're a member, you have access to member-only areas like the past show audio archives and the book club uh, and um, some, you know, some really interesting areas that you can only access as a member. So again, strangeplanet.ca, that's the website. And also, please uh, say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, S-Y because I love you, R-E-T. Who really murdered Mary Pinchot Meyer in the fall of 1964? Why was there a mad rush by CIA counterintelligence chief James Angleton to locate and confiscate her diary? Had Meyer finally put together the intricate pieces of bewildering conspiratorial mosaic of information that revealed a plan to assassinate her ally and lover, President Kennedy? And was it mere coincidence that Mary Meyer was killed less than three weeks after the release of the Warren Commission report? Drawing on years of painstaking research and interviews, much of it revealed here for the first time, author Peter Janney traces the most important events and influences in the life of Mary Pinchot Meyer, 
including her exploration of psychedelic drugs as a protege of Timothy Leary and her support of her secret lover, the President of the United States, as he turned away from the Cold War toward the pursuit of world peace. The 50th anniversary of President Kennedy's assassination and Mary Myers has come and gone, but their deaths remain a haunting harbinger of America's fall from grace. Peter Janney grew up in Washington, D.C. during the 1950s and 1960s. His father was a high-ranking CIA official and a close friend of Richard Helms, James Angleton, and Mary Meyer's husband, Cord Meyer. A graduate of Princeton, Peter is a clinical psychologist who lives by the sea in Beverly, Massachusetts. Peter Janney, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Great to be with you and your listeners this evening, Richard. Our pleasure. Uh, Peter, give us a thumbnail sketch of this uh, late Washington socialite, Mary Pinchot Meyer. Who was she? Well, this was a woman uh, of my parents' generation, you know, the, the sort of post-World War II generation, most of the who had been born in the late, you know, early 1920s, a little bit before, a little bit after. And uh, Mary Pinchot, uh, as you know, a young maiden was arguably one of the most beautiful women of an entire generation. And she was raised in a very aristocratic, progressive New York family. Uh, her mother was a well-known journalist, Ruth Pinchot. Her father, uh, Amos Pinchot, was one of the co-founders of the American Civil Liberties Union. They had a certain amount of money. Uh, her her uncle was Gifford Pinchot, a two-time governor of, of Pennsylvania. And during her upbringing, Richard, you know, this was a family that really put up a lot of premium on their children becoming independent, uh, both emotionally and intellectually, and they were encouraged to, in a sense, cultivate a state of independence. And you had a personal so, relationship to the family. Her her son uh, was her, her son your best was, friend. Was my, her son was my best friend. He was accidentally killed when we were both nine years old in a car accident, uh, which precipitated a huge grief reaction for me in my life. But uh, my mother had gone to college uh, with Mary Pinchot. They were in the same class at Vassar College, the class of 1942, and our fathers both worked uh, at the CIA, both were very high officials, both hired by Alan Dulles right after the inception of the CIA in 1947. So I was, you know, kind of known uh, as a CIA brat. There There were a number of us who our families socialized together. Uh, but Mary was something very, very different. She was unlike any other adult I knew as a child. Right. She was very present uh, when she talked with you or you talked with her. You really felt like she was actually listening uh, and just not trying to brush you off in some way. Very contactful individual. Right. A painter, a poet, a um... And also her brother-in-law was, was Ben Bradley of the, of the Washington Post. That's right. He wasn't at the Post, you know, at that time, but he was, you know, uh, head of Newsweek. Um, and he was actually the Washington bureau chief of Newsweek. Right. Uh, soon he would be recruited by uh, 
the Washington Post in, in 1965. Right, and good friends with uh, James Jesus Angleton's uh, wife. Uh, I mean, the connections to the CIA, um, um, ex-husband was Cordmeyer, a CIA. Um, so unusual that, uh, I mean, Jack Kennedy, obviously, we know of his penchant for, for, uh, for extramarital affairs. Uh, and, I mean, it was once quoted as, uh, you know, arriving at a party, and he said, you know, where are the broads? Well, Mary Pinchot uh, Meyer was not, you know, just another one of his broads, quote, end quote. Uh, there no, was a she, she, this, this relationship uh, with Mary actually uh, was engendered in 1936. JFK came back to Choate School after he had graduated. He was... He was a freshman at Princeton that year, but he had spent a lot of, he was sick a lot that year. And I think he was trying to sort of get back into the social game. So he went back to his high school or prep school winter festivities weekend in the winter of 1936. And Mary was the date of William Atwood, who was two years behind JFK. And and for your listeners, uh, Bill Atwood would eventually become uh, JFK's ambassador to Guinea when, after he was president. Um, he also orchestrated a very secret rapprochement with Fidel Castro in the fall of 1963. But that's when, in, in, in the winter of 1936, was when JFK first laid eyes on Mary, and he was mesmerized by her. He couldn't restrain himself from keep cutting in on Bill Atwood on the dance floor. And Bill Atwood happened to be, you know, a little bit sick that evening. So he had to run upstairs every often and gargle with Listerine because he had a really bad sore throat. And of course, whenever he went upstairs, JFK moved right in. Um, So there was this sort of, it wasn't a feud, but, you know, there was a certain amount of competition that, that, that went on at that time. But nothing romantic came out of that 1936 encounter. Mary was, already Mary was a very mature young woman, and she, she saw JFK for what he was, a, a young playboy type, and it didn't interest her. However, they did keep in touch. They did cross paths during college. Uh, and it really wasn't until uh, the late 1950s, after Mary had separated and divorced from Cordmeyer, that the two of them, uh, you know, started running into each other more frequently. And it was in the fall of 1960 that, you know, while he was campaigning for the presidency, that their actual affair began. Let me just remind listeners, Peter Janney is with us, the author of Mary's Mosaic, the CIA conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy, Mary Pinchot Meyer, and their vision for world peace. This is the third edition. And uh, we should also point out, forward by uh, Dick Russell, who did some, um, you know, very early on in the game, was investigating the JFK assassination for the Village Voice. Um, Not a lot of time here. We we could take three hours, obviously, and and discuss how their relationship unfolded and so forth. But... uh, Let's let's move ahead to October 12, 1964, about three weeks after the release of the uh, the Warren report uh, into the assassination of of JFK. Uh, Mary's body is found in a in a park. Uh, she had been shot uh, twice. Uh, 
and uh, just sort of pick up the uh, the timeline from there, if you could, Peter. We're, we're heading into a break in about three minutes, and uh, we'll start okay. it now. Well, your listeners should know that Mary had a routine. As a, as a painter, she would go to her studio, what was in the back of the Bradley House in Georgetown. She would paint from about 8.30 to noon, uh, and then she would customarily walk down into Georgetown and walk out what's known as the Chesapeake and Ohio towpath. And she would walk out the towpath about a mile and a half to a place called Fletcher's Boathouse and then turn around and walk back. And this was her routine. And so part of my research, I learned that she was under surveillance after the Warren Commission uh, came out. And, of course, on a certain day, uh, the order came down to take her out. And we should probably wait now until after the break. We'll go in and tell your audience exactly why and how this came about. Right. And, and no assassination, uh, and let's call this an assassination, uh, is complete without a patsy. And, of course, they had one ready to go, and that was a, uh, a, a poor African-American uh, by the name of Crump, Ray Crump Jr. Ray correct. Crump Jr. And as is often the case <laughs> with these, you know, there's a pattern here. Uh, it's like when Prouty was in New Zealand and he gets the newspaper and was reading about Oswald's, you know, being arrested before they'd even apprehended him in the in the theater. Same sort of thing with Crump. It was all, you know, they, they had this guy pegged. They had every they knew everything about him, uh, and they were ready to basically close the case. Is that not true? Yes, the the parallels in terms of the actual structure uh, of how the JFK assassination was structured and how this assassination was structured are very similar. All right. Okay, uh, it, it, it's, it's just remarkable. Right. I mean, for those who, who, who with uh, ears to hear and eyes to see, uh, you just see uh, history, well, as uh, Twain said, it doesn't always repeat, but it often echoes. We'll come back with Peter Janney. Uh, this is the third edition of Mary's Mosaic, the CIA conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy, Mark Pinchot Meyer, and their vision for world peace. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416 416- 360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740 You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Curiosity or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We are back with Peter Janney, Mary's Mosaic the CIA conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy, Mary Pinchot Meyer, and their vision for world peace. And we should say that this is, this is very personal, uh, this account, because, uh, uh, Peter, you knew uh, the Meyer family. Uh, your best friend was Mary's uh, son. He was killed tragically in 1956. Uh, and um, uh, 
uh, as we will, f- will find out, uh, it, it hits even closer to home. Uh, your father was uh, in the CIA, Wister, uh, Wister Janney, and we'll, uh, we'll talk about how he fits into this uh, story as well. Uh, so we were talking about the timeline of, uh, of uh, Mary's murder, and she's discovered in this, uh, in this park. It was actually her brother-in-law, Ben Bradley, that identified her body in the morgue, correct? That's correct, but that only took place after Ben Bradley got a very cryptic call from none other than my father uh, working at the CIA that day. And he called Ben up approximately uh, about uh, an hour or so after the murder had taken place. Ray Crump had already been apprehended and was arrested. They were waiting to take him downtown uh, to the Metropolitan Police Department. And so shortly after lunch, as Bradley tells it in his memoir, he got a call from his friend, Wister Janney, and the call went pretty much like this. Wister said to Ben, Ben, are you listening to the radio? And Ben said, Wister, why would I be listening to the radio? I'm at work. He said, well, there's, there's been a shooting down on the canal, and, and by the, the description of it, uh, it sounds like it could be Mary. Do, do you know where Mary is? And of course, that sets off a, a, a chain reaction, uh, you know, in Bradley, who is very, uh, you know, stunned by what he's being told. In any case, uh, he leaves work, and it isn't for several hours later uh, where the police show up at Bradley's house, having been to every other Meyer residence in the immediate area and and said to him, you know, Mr. Bradley, I think we may have your sister-in-law down at the morgue. Would you please come down and and identify the body? At which point he did. But the real clincher here, Richard, is why is my father calling up Ben Bradley to tell him about this? And after years of struggling with this, this was part of the CIA controlling the entire scenario. In other words, they waited until Crump was arrested. They're trying. Mary, Mary. They, the police had no uh, understanding of who the body was. There was no identification on Mary. Um, the only thing that they eventually saw was that inside of the gloves she was wearing, there was a name tag that said Meyer on it, and that was the only clue that eventually led that, led the police to go to her house and find that no one was there. And by uh, elimination, uh, it, it became apparent that the, the body in the morgue was that, was that of Mary Meyer. And, and Mary Meyer's um, affair with, with President Kennedy uh, was not public knowledge until, was it the National Enquirer that actually Correct. broke the story in 1967, I think? Was it 67? 76. 76, my, my apology, 76. Um, but obviously, uh, others knew and were well aware. I'm, I'm assuming the Secret Service there, and, and the, the CIA. There was a close group of Mary's friends that knew. I would say less than five. Uh, ben Bradley maintains that he didn't know about the affair. You, you know, I, I, I kind of doubt it. Um, and, of course, her sister maintains that uh, she didn't know about the affair, which I think is probably true. Mary was a very private person, and I think she made it clear to JFK that, look, if they were going to do this, he needed to play ball with her and basically, you know, 
try and be as secretive about this as possible. So there's this little dance that JFK does when he gets together with Ben Bradley and his wife, who is Mary's sister. And, of course, he pretends to be very doting on Mary's sister, thinking that, you know, she is his ideal woman. But it's it's just for show. You know, secretly... Mary JFK is really uh, head over heels in love with Mary. He he told his dear friend Charlie Bartlett, who was the uh, Washington editor of the Chattanooga Times newspaper, um, who JFK confided confided to a lot that he he was in love with Mary. Uh, he told Kenny O'Donnell, his special assistant, his closest assistant in the White House, that after he left the presidency. He was going to divorce Jackie so that he could be with Mary. This was what I call, as a psychologist, a relationship of redemption. I think JFK saw in Mary, for the first time, a woman who he could really trust and respect and who was not going to play games with him, nor was she going to tolerate any kind of games from him. So all through the book, your readers will see that there are little vignettes, you know, stories that I, I have tried to footnote over the years that, that really show that Mary was saying, look, you know, if you want to hang with me, you better get your stuff together because I'm not going to put up with this crap, you know. I mean, I know what these, this running around womanizing of yours is all about. You're it's all terrified. he knew. It's all he knew. Uh, he grew up in a house where his father did the same thing. Not yes. to excuse it, uh, but that's the context. Yes, but, but what this is really psychologically a reflection of is a flight from real intimacy. And JFK had tremendous difficulty with women and being able to be emotionally honest and intimate with them. I think, you know, he lost... One of his best friends, when his sister uh, Kat died, and uh, you know she was killed in an airplane crash, I think in the late 1940s, uh, Kit, uh, as she was called, and I think it devastated JFK that the closest relationship he had ever had with any kind of woman, his sister, was now was now lost. Peter Jan it, is with us, author of Mary's Mosaic, the CIA conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy, Mary Pinchot Meyer, and their vision for world peace. Uh, just jumping ahead here quickly, and, and um, we, we need more time, obviously, but the, the connection with uh, Timothy Leary and, and Mary Pinchot Meyer, uh, the story goes that that um, apocryphal or not, you tell me, she introduced LSD to the president? Well, she uh, introduced the hallucinogen psilocybin, which is, you know, like LSD. It's a little bit different, but, you know, the same idea. You know, you know Mary, as an artist, really was on, on the cutting edge, so to speak. I mean, she was very intrigued by uh, hallucinogens. She had used them herself. She found them profoundly helpful when used responsibly. Uh, She was out on the West Coast hanging with a crowd out there that had to do a lot of Hollywood people were having LSD sessions with several uh, psychiatrists out there who were doing this kind of thing. So this was really, you know, 
kind of the avant-garde artistic uh, trajectory that that Mary was a part of. And and so, you know, when she realizes what the power of these substances are, she she feels that they can be an immense tool uh, for expanding the consciousness of political leaders to show them that, you know, there is something more important uh, than imperialism and war and <laughs> conquering the world. And, and so she goes to Tim Leary actually in the fall of 1962 because she wants to learn how to guide someone through a hallucinogenic session. And so Tim Leary helps her out. He's very attracted to her. They, you know, but she doesn't tell him any of the real details of what she's up to in Washington. She won't tell him that she's having an affair with the prince, with the president. She won't tell him that she's organized several other women, one of whom I believe was Catherine Graham of the Washington Post, uh, who are interested uh, in giving some of the more important leaders in Washington the opportunity to experience uh, what this is all about. It reminds me, flash ahead to the uh, late 60s, early 70s, when Grace Slick from Jefferson Airplane, I think she was attending a, uh, a Nixon's daughter's wedding, and she tried to slip some acid into Nixon's coffee, if memory serves. But th- was President Kennedy actually, I don't know to use the vernacular, tripping out in the White House? Well, as far as I can make out, and I, you know, there's no unequivocal proof for this, but there are, as, as your potential readers will find out, and I don't want to, you know, wreck it for them, um, there are several uh, strands in my book that pretty much show that in May of 1963, Mary and JFK uh, did a mild hallucinogenic uh, experience experience together with psilocybin in Georgetown at the house of Joe Alsop, the the journalist. And so you fast forward several weeks into June, June 10th, 1963, where JFK gives this historic American University commencement address on world peace. Right. Some say that may have been the nail in his coffin, that speech. That's exactly right. I mean, and it's very clear at that point coming out of the Cuban Missile Crisis that previous fall in October of 1962, where arguably it was the most dangerous moment in all of human history. You know, JFK comes out of that, as does Nikita Khrushchev, realizing that this is insane, that they can never allow this kind of thing to happen again, that they damn near destroyed the planet. I mean, it Literally, Richard, you and I, if, that had, if, if there had been a thermonuclear war back in the fall of 1962, you and I would not be sitting here talking today. Uh, it would have just been devastating in terms of life as we know it on planet Earth. Yeah, I don't so, think people appreciate, young people in particular, how close uh, we were. I, I've talked to people uh, out on the West Coast uh, who, who lived through this and, 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 and were telling me how at one point they're listening to the radio, they would, they'd stop the car, pulled over, and were literally hugging each other and saying goodbye to each other. That's how yes. close we were. Yes. 
and and even you know we didn't even know until 20 year 29 years after the Cuban missile crisis we we learned for the first time that not only did the Russians have medium range ballistic missiles in Cuba these were the strategic weapons with nuclear warheads attached but they also had 102 additional battlefield nuclear weapons in addition to these missiles, 80 of which were cruise missiles with Hiroshima-sized warheads on them. And the Russian commanders in Cuba were told that they had permission to use these tactical weapons if a U.S. invasion were to take place and they couldn't contact Moscow. So this would have precipitated a, a thermonuclear war, the entire planet would have descended into a nuclear winter with tremendous fallout, causing mutations, sickness for generations. It, this is in addition to sunlight being blocked from the Earth for at least five years. Right. Temperatures so, would have fallen, plant life would have died, and our, our entire food chain would have been destroyed. I mean, it would have been a global catastrophe that that the likes of which we we can't even imagine so one has to wonder then that that jfk having uh, gone through that experience the missiles of october that perhaps combined with later his his uh, his dalliance with psilocybin whether that uh, perhaps provided the motivation to make that speech uh that uh, at the um uh, was it american university yes uh that that uh, you know sort of marked his commitment uh, to, you know, to move away from this madness. Uh, And um, we'll we'll pick it up on the other side. Peter Janney is with us. Mary's Mosaic, the CIA conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy, Mary Pinchot Meyer, and their vision for world peace. We'll also talk about the diary. There always has to be a diary. Back with more. Stay with it. When you look at the sky... Ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. We are back with Peter Janney, Mary's Mosaic. This is the third edition, forward by uh, Dick Russell. All right, uh, the, um, I'm guessing in the aftermath of, of Mary's murder, those who were really responsible, and again, uh, they, they tried to pin it on uh, this Ray Crump Jr., African-American. Uh, but I- immediately following her murder, there is a, a mad scramble to locate a missing diary. That's right. And only two or three of Mary's friends knew that she was keeping a diary where she was not only 
keeping a diary of their affair together. But all of 1964, up until her death, Mary was doing her own research on the assassination. And, you know, being who she was, she had quite a bit of access to high-level people in Washington uh, who basically had told her this, in fact, was a conspiracy. I, I mean, Kenny O'Donnell, again, coming back to Kenny, who was JFK's chief assistant, he told House Speaker Tip O'Neill uh, years later that they were driving into an ambush in Dallas. The shots were coming from the grassy knoll, not from, you know, behind uh, in the Texas School Book Depository, although there were actually three teams. There was triangulated gunfire that eventually took JFK out. Right. Who has the, the power to change the parade route? Certainly not uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Or the mafia. Right. Or any Castro Cubans. Right. You see, I mean, this was a government conspiracy at the highest level logistically orchestrated by the CIA, and the project manager was Alan Dulles. Make no mistake about it. Now, the uh, the diary, in addition to containing her own notes as she's trying to piece together the murder of her lover, JFK, was there also, as there was reported to be with, with Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe, was there pillow talk, discussions, other things, national security-type issues in that diary? Uh, I don't know because I never actually saw the diary. I, I, I do have some sense that, yeah, there was a lot of pillow talk uh, about a number uh, of things because JFK really looked toward Mary as one of his chief allies. I mean, his turning away from the Cold War toward world peace you know, this was a very lonely decision on his part because that meant he abandoned the entire national security apparatus. They couldn't control him anymore. He wasn't listening to what they were telling, and he rightly believed that what they were telling him was, again, always going to be some kind of setup, uh, like the Bay of Pigs incident in, in, in April of 1961. So he, he lost trust in his national security apparatus. And the other interesting variable here, Richard, is that right after, at the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and subsequently afterward, he was having a secret relationship with Khrushchev. They were writing these letters to each other back and forth where they both came to an agreement that the Cold War was futile and that they needed to drop it and work toward world peace together. So in this American University speech, JFK announces for the first time uh, to the public that he's going to create a limited nuclear arms treaty with Russia. And literally, that treaty is ratified in the space of three months it's ratified by the U.S. Senate in the following September in 63. This was uh, this kind of thing was unheard of. And, of course, had the CIA been a part of this treaty or the Pentagon part of this treaty, they would have never gotten it ratified. He abandoned the national security apparatus in order to get this done. But that was just one instance of his world peace initiative. 
the, uh, another one was that he was going behind the, the main lines of channel to try and make peace, to create a, a new rapprochement with Fidel Castro. He, he did not want to keep having this militaristic, bellicose, threatening kind of uh, war with Cuba and with, you know, the CIA always trying to sabotage the country or kill Castro, you know, one thing or another. JFK was going underground to try and reach Castro to see what they could do to work together and come together. The third thing that he was doing, and, and there were more than three, but I'm just going to give you the highlights of something really important. In November of 63, early November, he goes to the UN and he announces that he wants to go to the moon with Russia, that this is going to be a joint space venture. And this would have been the ultimate symbol of the end of the Cold War. Had the U.S. and Russia gone to the moon together, uh, we would have be living on a very different planet. Indeed. Uh, we're we're going to head into a break. Peter Janney, Mary's Mosaic, the CIA conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy, Mary Pinchot Meyer, and their vision for world peace. Back with one more segment here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Peter Janney uh, is with us, Mary's Mosaic. This is the third edition. And we are talking about uh, the connection between the uh, assassination of John F. Kennedy and uh, his lover, uh, Washington socialite Mary Pinchot Meyer. And uh, the Meyer family is, uh, was very close to uh, the Janney family. And uh, Peter stays with us. Peter, uh, this journal, was it ever located? Uh Parts of the real diary were located. Uh, I was never able to come in contact with it, but I, do, I did know two people who did. Uh, one of them was an author by the name of Leo Damore, who came on the scene before me. I met Mr. Damore. Uh, we became quite good friends in the space of about a year and a half. And then, you know, in the fall of 1965, Mr. Damore uh, commits suicide under very suspicious circumstances. So this is another, you know, one of those events, Richard, where, you know, people are dropping like flies uh, and the nature of their death is increasingly suspicious. Um, 
but I do know that Leo Damore had certain parts of Mary De, uh, Mary's diary, and he did tell me that there were a lot of uh, things written about what actually was going on in Dallas. Of course, there were things written about the nature of their affair, their hallucinogens, uh, discussion and, and eventual experience together, things like that. Uh, the the Joint House Committee on Assassinations in the uh, late 70s, which actually, actually uh, in its report, uh, said that there was a conspiracy, uh, likely a conspiracy, to kill uh, Kennedy. Right. Um, they saw documents which they weren't allowed to divulge. These are documents that are, are, are to be sealed until the year 2029. Uh, are, and I believe those same documents were, were, were seen by um, members of a subcommittee on the church uh, committee. Right. The, these documents, were they, were they referred to, or any information in those sealed documents, were they referred to in, uh, in Mary's diary? Well, I... I, cu- I couldn't say uh, for sure. I-, I-, I do know that, you know, in terms of what Senator Richard Schweiker of uh, Pennsylvania uh, finally came out and say, I mean, he, he said very pu- publicly, and-, and I'll quote it, he said, we don't know what happened in Dallas, but we do know Oswald had intelligence connections. Everywhere you look with him, there are the fingerprints of intelligence. Now, he went on to have another interview with, a, with an author uh, that I know, David Talbot, uh, and he told David Talbot right out front, he said, you know, what I saw proved to me that, that you know, Oswald was, was the product of a fake defector program that was run by the CIA. In other words, this defection, this alleged defection that Oswald went to Russia, you know, gave up his U.S. citizenship, uh, this was this was a system that the CIA used to get people into to Russia to see if they could come out with, you know, useful intelligence. Right. There uh, were probably would, a dozen Oswalds running around in places like Minsk and so forth around that same time. Absolutely. A- absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> and, and, of course, uh, being who I was, Richard, I, I was able to get access to certain former CIA personnel, and because they knew my father, they were willing to talk to me when they generally don't talk uh, to journalists. But one of them was a very well-known uh, CIA officer by the name of Victor Marchetti. He's written several books. He left the CIA. He became very disillusioned with with uh, what they were doing. He worked for my father at, at one time. You know, he, he confirmed for me and uh, for another author uh, that, you know, Oswald was was trained at this place in Nags Head, uh, North Carolina, something called the Illusionary Warfare Training Program. It was run by the Office of Naval Intelligence. And there are other people who have come forward and said that they saw Oswald there. Um, So, I I mean, what your listeners really need to understand is that we have all been duped 
by our government, particularly in this case, the Warren Commission report. It really isn't worth the paper it's printed on. Was, it's a f- who, who was, excuse me, Peter, who was feeding Mary this information about her lover's murder? Who Was it someone in the the intelligence gathering uh, organizations? Was it uh, journalists? Who was telling Mary this th- these things that she was jotting down in the diary that perhaps was responsible for her death? I only know of one person for sure, and that would be Kenny O'Donnell, ah, okay. JFK's chief assistant, because he was riding in the car directly behind JFK. And both JFK and Dave Powers, who were in that car, both of whom were seasoned World War II combat veterans. And when they came in to Daly Plaza and the gunfire started, these guys were smart enough to know where the gunfire was coming. And it was coming from in front and to the right. They could smell the gunpowder. They could see puffs of smoke. It was so clear uh, that this fish story that the Warren Commission was trying to get people to believe that all the shots came by from this lone nut assassin who was up on the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository. It it was a complete fabrication. It was a complete cover-up. And that was precisely why Mary was assassinated. She read the Warren Commission report, the, the abridged paperback version, when it first came out in late September of 64. And it was at that point she realized, my God, this is an even bigger cover-up than the assassination itself. The only thing left for me to do is to go public with who I am and what my relationship to the president was and to tell people what is really going on here. Her phones were being tapped. The CIA was very aware of what she was doing. She was put under surveillance. They knew what her routines were. And it was a decision was made to make it look like a random act of violence out on the canal towpath on October 12th. And that's when they took her down. And uh, without giving everything away, um, uh, this uh, particularly, obviously, unbelievably painful moment for you when you start to connect the dots and some of them lead to your own father, Wister Janney. That's correct. Part of the the reckoning that that I eventually had to do in, in doing this research, coming to the point where I could put the pieces together, was realizing, oh my God, not only was my own father part of the conspiracy to take this woman out, uh, I learned through a particular CIA document, which is Appendix 5 in the new edition, that he was instrumental in trying to destroy uh, the credibility of Jim Garrison's investigation of, of Clay Shaw. I mean, my father was clearly involved in the cover-up of trying to maintain uh, the CIA's innocence uh, in, in this event, when in fact they were the ones that were pulling all the strings together and creating the scenario for this to happen in Dallas. Uh, what was your 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 relationship like with your father growing up? Well. Uh, as I went to college uh, in the fall of 1966, uh, with the escalation of the Vietnam War starting to take place, that's when my father and, and my relationship really started to be challenged. Um, I was not happy at all with what 
learning about what the CIA was doing in the world and specifically what my father was doing in the world as part of it. Uh, I didn't really know that much about what he really did. I, I didn't find out most of what I know until after he died. He died very early in 1979. He, he wasn't even 60 years old yet. Um, and so it wasn't until, you know, approximately 2006, 2007, when I was deep into the research of putting this book together, that I was able to put two and two together and, and see who he really was and what he had really done. And uh, I can't imagine uh, how painful that must have been for you, but can you, are you able to take me back to, was there a particular document, a particular piece of evidence that, that pointed towards your own father? Well, I, there's, a, there's a little vignette in the book where I talk about being awakened uh, one February morning uh, in 2007. It was very dark in my room. I, I, I woke up. I was disoriented. I thought someone might be in my apartment. Um, I, I, my, my memory was that I'd been talking to someone, but I didn't know who I was talking to. But there was a there was a presence, you know, in my immediate environment, and I just sort of sat up and sort of pulled myself together and, and got oriented, and then immediately this thought came through of understanding why my father had called Ben Bradley right after the murder. My father knew about the murder. He knew what was going on. The CIA was, you know, controlling the whole operation. Uh, and it was clear to me that he had a role, an assignment uh, in this assassination. And uh, that was it. Uh, in terms of the document that I came across, uh, I came across that document soon after. Uh, it is, a me I, I really don't know why the CIA le let it out. Uh, it was, you know, it went through the histor CIA historical review process, but it, it's so incriminating. I mean, the document itself is what any lawyer would call prima facie evidence of the CIA's involvement in the Kennedy assassination. And your readers will be able to see it in, in the back of my book. It's appendix number five, and I discuss it at the end of the new chapter, the very last chapter. And uh, it, it's, it, it's pretty, it, it's quite upsetting. And I don't think there have been uh, any assassination researchers who have really understood the significance of it. Uh, it, it, it's very damning. It's very incriminating. And, you know, this is an upper level, high echelon secret CIA meeting going on with the highest level of leadership in the agency at that time. And they are very, very worried about what Jim Garrison's investigation is uncovering. And that's why they're having a series of these meetings about what Jim Garrison is doing. And, and of course, the, the, the immediate question, Richard, is, well, if you guys are so convinced that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone nut assassin, why are you, why are you so upset about this? And, and, of course, it's all right there on the page. The, um, the CIA, uh, were they 
just a uh, a collection of of soulless mercenaries, or deep down did they truly believe that Kennedy was a national security risk had to be had to be removed by whatever means and 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 unfortunately, Mary Pinchot Meyer was just one of those loose ends that had to be uh, cleaned up as well. Well, I, I think what your listeners need to understand is that any president who comes into office and decides that they want to have their own administration and be independent and take our country where they believe it should go, um, they're going to be shit out of luck. Uh, you know, if you don't, if you're not willing, if you're not going to play the game in terms of, look, you're a figurehead for four years. We're going to tell you what to do. We're going to tell you what you can do, what you can't do. If you're not willing to play by the rules, they're going to eliminate you. And that's precisely why they created a public execution, for lack of a better word. Right. Let, to uh, let everybody Kennedy. know. To let everybody know. Let there be no mistake. We, uh, Peter, we are out of time. Um, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I enjoyed our conversation immensely. It's great to be with you, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. Mary's Mosaic, the CIA conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy, Mary Pinchot Meyer, and their vision for world peace. My website, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. As always, follow the truth. listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, taxi, your parents' basement, loft, your RV, your camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and the cabin in the woods. Welcome to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, here in Toronto. 50,000 watts of peace and love, comprising the largest broadcast footprint in North America. Hi to all of you listening to uh, to us via the, uh, the podcasts at stitcherradiotunein.com. Uh, iTunes, and of course, TalkZone.com. And of course, those of you who carry us with you wherever you go on our wonderful apps, uh, the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, both free downloads, incidentally, and both uh, terrific uh, radio apps, really the best in the business. And of course, uh, all of you uh, checking us out on the uh, on YouTube, uh, from our YouTube channel. Now, incidentally, we're not doing our Hangout on Air this evening. Albert Vinzel, my intrepid story producer and uh, occasional remote viewer, is away tonight. But we will resume the HOAs uh, tomorrow night. However, Rosemary Ellen Guiley will be with us at the bottom of the hour for our monthly Paranormal News Roundup. Have some interesting stories, including a, a young um, gentleman in Atlanta who suffered a concussion, uh, went into a coma when he woke up he spoke fluent Spanish. And uh, we'll also talk about doppelgangers. That's Rosemary Ellen Guiley coming up first. 
It's always a delight to welcome this gentleman back to the program. He is a remote viewer. He is a, a clairvoyant in the tradition of the great sleeping prophet, Edgar Casey. He's known, in fact, as Canada's Edgar Casey, the man with X-ray eyes. He's a medical intuitive and a healer. And his brand new book is Conversations with the Akashic Field. Douglas James Cottrell, how are you, my friend? It's a pleasure to be back with you. I'm fine uh, for a 67-year-old young guy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're like a bottle of wine, my friend, just getting better with age. Okay, I won't talk about the wrinkles on the label then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we need to talk about your brand new book that is uh, just about uh, due to, uh, to come out, and that is Conversations with the Akashic Field. <clears throat> now, your, um, your deep trance meditations, uh, like Edgar Casey, the sleeping prophet, mm-hmm. you're both tapping into the Akashic Field. That's the, that's the principle behind it, correct? That's correct. Uh, This whole book um, is based on uh, the insights, the wisdoms from the Akashic field, uh, Akashic records, uh, your individual uh, book of life. Uh, These are the sources of this information. Uh, There's a lady you might be familiar with, Lynn McTaggart, who has written a book called The Field. Yes. And uh, she is now uh, touting that scientists are... are, uh, developing strategies to prove that this field actually exists. Well, I've been around for, you know, since 1974, and uh, Peterson, Ross Peterson, my mentor before that, Edgar Casey before that, and a whole host of others. So uh, I'm glad to see that science is catching up with what the mystics and the mysterious uh, people, uh, call myself mysterious, who practice as sleeping meditation, or what I'm like uh, preferring to call it now is quantum meditation, and it is a source of truth. The idea that you can go to this storehouse of knowledge, this library, if you will, and you can view the records of every single person uh, that is alive today and or who has been alive in previous times. Uh, because this, uh, this non-physical place exists, there's no time. And so you transcend time and space, and that's why clairvoyance can look backwards and forwards and see world events. And what we've done in this book is that uh, the wisdom of, of these sessions has been um, basically taken from uh, people's individual sessions over many, many years. Uh, for instance, um, if you like, uh, the first chapter in the book, by the way, you wrote the, uh, uh, you wrote the, um, forward to this, I believe. I did? Uh, yes. I must have been, I must have uh, communicated it to you while I was in a deep meditative trance. You were. <laughs> you, wrote, you wrote, actually, was the introduction, pardon me, and uh, as always, you are an excellent writer. Thank you. Not not just because I'm saying that, that we're friends and, and we're, we're uh, promoting my book tonight, but because you actually are a very good writer. Thank you, my friend. Here, here's chapter one, Enthusiasm. I'll just read the first paragraph or two. The world itself is indeed a place in which many minds believe their view, their opinion, is the correct one. The only opinion that is correct is that there are many opinions and many minds, and that each must follow his or her own path to arrive at his or her own ultimate destination. There is a time of extremes, and it is a time of change. Being flexible and adapting to change makes one successful. Having little in regard to bring, uh, being tethered to property makes one peaceful. Being able to be at ease 
or at peace at all, any moment of the day, makes one in harmony with the planet and the universe, uh, universe itself. That's uh, from the first one, and then here's a, a little bit of a favorite one. It appears that there are certain stages or steps in front of you that would be taken, and you seem to have stepping stones in front. It would appear that the last uh, two years have been difficult, but the next three should be exciting. Remember, these are from people's individual sessions. Continue to take the steps. Be assured the development of the inner self will be continuing, and, and all the answers to all the questions that have um, that have left are a certain degree of uncertainty or questions in the mind would appear to be answered, you see, in time, without much difficulty. As we see it, you need a little patience here, but take the steps. And uh, it says, be assured, no need to hesitate, so to speak. So these are transcripts of actual readings that you have right. given people while you're in this quantum meditative state, and you are you are accessing their file, if you will, in the Akashic record. This this that's vast exactly, storehouse. Go ahead. You're exactly right, Richard. Okay, so this, uh, the Akashic um, record, uh, you described it as a library uh, that's in some other dimension. It's out there in the ether. So every, every thought, every word that has ever been uttered, every uh, sentence that has ever been um, uh, composed is all stored in this vast database um, somewhere in the in 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 the clouds, it's almost like the uh, you know people that that have iPhones and so forth. You can save data to the cloud. That's a that's a very good example uh, and analogy. You're exactly right. The ability to go into a state of meditation and transcend your personal uh, limitations and contact the uh, Akashic cloud. I mean, you've you've just coined that word tonight. Uh, is available to each and every one of us. The limitations on it are that we're not all ready to see uh, all the lifetimes and the thoughts and the deeds that we've lived, the regrets. Uh, you know, sometimes we've been very, very good, and sometimes we've not been so very, very good. But as we go through this, uh, this experience, gathering wisdom or knowledge, we're adding to what some people have called, and I believe it's uh, the, the Akashic field or this storehouse of knowledge, could be considered the mind of God. Uh, God meaning it's remembrances of God. Everything that we do is put into this spiritual dimension. And so I'm, I'm not trying to confuse God, the Almighty Being, but in the mind of God, which is something that we all are as spiritual beings uh, part of. Uh, you know, we're all, we are made in the likeness of God, and this is the attachments that we have. So this field, this information, this knowledge is accessible, uh, and anyone can do so. But the limitations is that you only get enough to help you with the circumstances you find yourself in. And as you develop this awareness, you become self-aware. And as you continue in your soul journey, your experiences, and you're seeking to be a spiritual person or being, you naturally go into developing the intuitive skills and abilities that are recounted, by the way, in the, in the uh, first uh, uh, book of Corinthians, chapter 12, called Spiritual Gifts. And part of that is this ability to become uh, self-realized, you know, a spiritual being and, and, and a physical body. And now you're beginning to see yourself as more than just, you know, I'm here for, you know, uh, four score and ten and I'm gone. 
So what? Uh, why should I be uh, a compassionate, good person? Why don't I just grab everything I can while I'm here? But, you know, I, I live for today and die for tomorrow. But the point is that as you begin to understand that there is an attorney and you have an attorney in view, you begin to become fully realized as a spiritual being. And that's how people ascend or become enlightened as you go through this time of seriously looking at yourself in this lifetime, today, right now, as you attempt to be a good person, be compassionate, put limits on desires, and avoid corruption, you will be self-aware, and then you'll move into being fully realized, ultimately. Dr. Douglas James Cottrell is uh, my guest, and uh, the new book, uh, which will be out um, just in a couple of weeks, is Conversations with the Akashic Field. Uh, we, we've heard of, uh, you know, the great libraries, the great library of Alexandria that was, uh, that was burned uh, to the ground. And um, we assumed that all of this ancient knowledge uh, was lost forever. Uh, consider, for example, that uh, the, the, um, the ancient Greeks, uh, much of their, their, their knowledge of, of mathematics, advanced mathematics, was, was stored at the, uh, the library in Alexandria, Egypt. And when that burned to the ground and those records were destroyed, we thought forever, uh, society wasn't able to catch up to the ancient Greeks' understanding of mathematics until sometime, I believe, in the early 19th century. Um, but you're saying that all of that knowledge of all the great libraries uh, that were, were written down on you know, papyrus and so forth and supposedly lost to the fire, that's all still out there. It's all accessible. Not only just for that library, but the Ottoman Empire, who brought us the wonderful uh, mathematical numeral zero before they came up with nobody had a zero, and they, their contribution to mathematics was zero. All that information is there. The information from all time is available, and that's, it's provable. Uh, the scientists, again, with uh, um, Lynn McTaggart's book, is showing that there is a consciousness that exists. And what we are right now, we're on the verge, and, and I, I see myself as a forerunner as well, uh, on the greatest frontier, and that's the, uh, the human conscious frontier. And this is part of it. All that knowledge that's in that library is there. Now, my, my motto, faith is built upon belief, beliefs built upon evidence. So I've got to have the proof. Well, people have had dreams about inventions, and then they've come true. People have been able to look back in time, in, in historical times, and get information that wasn't uh, written down or available. Uh, things I've said on your show about Jesus being married, uh, and there's a propriety that came out, and it refers to the possibility that he was married and had uh, siblings. Uh, by the way, we're writing another book that should be out before Christmas called... Uh, uh, basically, Avatar of Jesus the Christ, and that one's uh, that one's in the in the works. Douglas is is uh, working on it. Okay, listen, uh, I, I've got to take but, a time out, uh, uh, Douglas. Okay, we'll come back and continue to delve into conversations with the Akashic Field. Doctor Douglas James Cottrell, my guest on the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Where there's smoke, there's the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with remote viewer, medical intuitive, healer, 
Uh, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell and his new book is Conversations with the Akashic Field. Its uh, release date is uh, imminent. Uh, you mentioned in the last uh, break accessing the Akashic uh, Field, this vast storehouse, the accumulation of all of man's knowledge, past and present. Uh, what about the future? Uh, everything, every life that will ever, every soul that will um, ever live, every every word that will be uttered uh, in the future, is that also stored in the Akashic Field? Well, it is. Those are called timelines. Uh, the great uh, Huna uh, religion of in Hawaii had this idea that things materialize in this ever-present moment. Uh, the name I've coined for that uh, void of, of future. And timelines can be established. And while those things are, are coming to manifest, they're changeable. But once they're solidified, it's prophecy, and those things can never change. So looking forward... Based on, remember, this is a pla- this is a place of knowledge and wisdom, and uh, people can look at this wisdom and gain uh, insights into how to make their life better, how to be more successful. What am I doing wrong that I can correct now to be more successful in the future? So, looking into the future, uh, prophets like me have been able to see at uh, at great lengths in the future. Uh, Casey and Ross Peterson had predictions that were based on this knowledge in the Akashic, which gives it the understanding that there's a destiny and a purpose to the universe. Now, sometimes it doesn't work out just in the same time frame as we expect, and therefore it comes around again. But all those things that are supposed to be in the world, for whatever reason that the cosmos has decided, the universal mind, God Almighty has decided they should come into the world, they do. After all, this is a learning uh, place. The point being is that you can look into the future and you can perceive glimpses of the future, snapshots, if you will. And if you, uh, again, practice meditation, and if you read books like uh, this one, the, uh, um, the Akashic Field, and you progress in your own way, you can develop this ability to gain information that will help you and help you make good decisions to go forward in time. My website is douglasjamescottrell.com. And uh, uh, my books are on sale on Amazon, Indigo, and, and also on our website. And by the way, special uh, for your show, Richard, I'm offering a 40% discount on the Akashic uh, field, which turns out to be, if I can be commercial here, 14.95 Canadian. It's a $25 book and $11 and change or $11 even in the U.S., Darn Americans get a fantastic break <laughs> buying Canadian all the time. Now, how do they so, take? How do my listeners take advantage of that? How do they do that? They just go on. We, we've uh, we've got the discount going. Uh, we've extended it for another week uh, or a few more days. Uh, we should have had the book in hand now, but uh, we've added more color and, and uh, we've had to go through a, a bit of a, a production glitch. And so we've got about ten more days before we get the book in hand. So we're going to extend that for somewhat, but. Uh, again, the point being is that if you want to learn about uh, what the Akashic field is all about, this is one of the best books I've ever written. My son, uh, Douglas uh, Matthew Cottrell, is, uh, has got an MA in, in, uh, here in Western and he, in English literature. He has expertly gathered this information along with our friend Tom from Ramstein Raglan and a few other people, uh, our friend Tim Charbonneau in Montreal. This has been a collaborative effect of very talented people. So this is a really good book. I know it's my book, and I don't want to sound like I'm blowing my own horn, but it is a very good book, as most of our books have been 
fairly well received. This one should be the best. And I alluded to the next one about Jesus coming up, but that we're not there yet. This one is is the best book uh, that takes from several years little bits of information like, don't worry that this chaotic time is a spiraling downward. This is a time of extremes, a testing or teaching time. Humankind itself will come to the greatest resolve and the greater understanding. It is necessary these chaotic times came into the world, for there can be a blessing in the same. That's chapter 3, first paragraph. That kind of information or wisdom, it's, it's uh, given to the uh, ordinary person level of reading. This is not a heavy, heavy book to read. It, right. It's an enlightening book. So I, I recommend people, the website's douglasjamescottrell.com, and we've got big discounts on for the next few days. When you, when you access the Akashic field or the Akashic library, walk me through that, because you're saying anyone can learn to do this, and obviously you've perfected this over a lifetime, 40 years plus. Uh, That's but, a good question, Richard. Yeah. How Excellent. do you do it? Well, the first is uh, to enter into a state of meditation, which is a profound, deep state of meditation. In the East, I found out just last year that it's called shamadi mind, which is a combination of your conscious, rational mind, you know, logic and reasoning and, and all those faculties, combined with and working through the subconscious mind to the super subconscious mind, or what I've called the uh, contemplative mind, which is all the spiritual gifts and abilities. As you relax down, you actually go up. And I've had similar experiences to Edgar Casey. Uh, you leave, first of all, your body becomes very heavy. It feels then as if it's ballooning out. Then I have a feeling as if I remember um, when I first started, I was going up in an elevator shaft. And I looked down, and there was myself laying on the couch, the person having the session or the reading, and my conductor, Hans Peters, God bless him. Uh, there and it was like I was looking down and I was going up and I remember another occasion I was going into dimensions where there were people dressed in in the uh, sort of uh, uh, European turbans and robes and philosophers kind of things gathered in groups of three as far as I could see so I was able to to see these various dimensions but I had to also go through this first level or first dimension uh, for lack of a better description the astral plane where people are earthbound and there's grotesque faces and they're reaching out trying to grab at me and hold me back and so breaking through those those experiences those levels those dimensions i always had ross peterson as my mentor so when something happened i come up and say ross 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 this happened to me last night i was doing a meditation he was oh well you're just causing a disturbance on the other side it'll be okay okay it'll never happen again and it never did so if you have a little instruction, and this is why I'm teaching, I am teaching people, I've got a class coming up in January for people that want to do this, the same method, the same methodology or phenomena as Edgar Casey, Ross Peterson, Paul Solomon, and myself. This can be taught, but you don't need, you know, if you, if you persevere, you don't need to take formal instruction. You can do it in dreams and visions, and sometimes you're out there, uh, you know, some people call it astral, astral traveling, remote viewing, mind projecting, being clairvoyant. You're touching on dimensions while you're in a deep state of sleep. All it takes is a curiosity. Can I do this? Can I find this place? Reading a book like mine, The Akashic Field, and reading uh, uh, Ms. Taggart's, uh, 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 McTaggart's book will help you convince your mind that this is possible. And once you get past the first block, which is doubt, once you get past that and you begin to see, like, how did I do that? Because you've had a glimpse, you've had some evidence, 
then you're on your way. Do you think that the, um, I, I keep referring it to, to it as a library because it is a repository of, of knowledge and so forth, but is it, is it just an, is it an allegory or a, a metaphor or is yeah. it, do you think, an, a physical place but on another plane? I tell you truthfully, I cannot say that for sure. Uh, Edgar Casey referred to it as a library where the book of lives were, uh, book of life was stored for each individual. I refer to it in the same way because it gives us our logical, rational mind something to uh, to sort of grab onto and say, "Oh, I understand." But I think it's like this: it comes from the same place where thoughts come from, mm-hmm. and it's the same place where thoughts go. And so, uh, you know, we've all had these experiences where all of a sudden uh, we've been wondering about something and all of a sudden there it is in our mind, the solution, the answer to the question. And we go, my God, it was so simple. Why didn't I think of that before? Right. And sometimes you have uh, you mentioned uh, inventors earlier. And I Mm -hmm. want to talk to you about, you know, what Tesla and and, uh, he talked about. And I've talked to other inventors who say that all of these inventions exist first in the dream world. I agree. Uh, and they're tapping into that. But you also have cases where uh, inventors will come up with the same idea at almost the exact same time or within the same time frame, which, right. again, I, suggests that they're tapping into a similar source. Also, that everything has a time and a place. I have inventions. I have really I have two patents. Um, I've invented 28 different things. I've had them notarized. I just didn't act on them. And I found other people came up with them, the same thing, that invisible fence that people uh, put around their their yard. I invented it to keep elephants and birds away from buildings, was a was a radio frequency. And now they use it for uh, wire around uh, some property to keep the dog away, uh, keep the dog sort of within you the You invented that? I had no yeah, idea. I I've known you for 25 years. You're holding out on me. <laughs> I have I have several notarized. I can say off the top of my head that I can remember 14... I've invented a new printing process. I invented all kinds of stuff. But that's when I was in my 20s and I was into this meditation and I was enthusiastic and I was trying to harden copper and I was doing all these, these things. I was coming up with inventions and I would uh, take them down to the, to the uh, uh, Richies and Richies. I think it was at Bloor, uh, 2 Bloor Street West or East, I forget now. And I come in and I have the crudest drawings ever. <laughs> And he he notarized them for free. He thought it was a bit of a you know it was all I made his day. I'd come in with an idea, and he said, "That'll work. That's a good one." Why you know I had a, I have a, my name's out there. I invented a pizza container, uh, which was a styrofoam polystyrene container, the largest polystyrene you know that you could stretch uh, polystyrene. That's like styrofoam. I had um, a star. I had a hexacon. Uh, no, say I had a honey comb uh, bottom, I had re- uh, buttresses on the side, and I had it so you could take one mold and you did the top and bottom be identical. Now, I'm not an engineer. Where did I get that information from? From the Akashic. And the reason two people come in with an invention at the same time is to make sure that the world gets that invention because it's supposed to be in the world at that time. And that's why two people come up almost within the same time uh, the last one, of the last ideas I had was a, a truck uh, that would be um, that you would put along the side of, uh, of the road. It would fill up the gaps with tar and uh, and repair the side, and would be just a truck fixed with cameras and whatever. I never did anything about it. Hmm. All of a sudden, on television, here's the guy. He's got one of those um, salt trucks 
<laughs> full of tar. And I'm going, there's my idea. There you go. I think that's, you know, many of us can relate to that. Is it, oh, I had that idea too, If I, but they, we don't act on it sometimes. That's right. Are there restricted no-go zones within the Akashic Library? Yes, there is. Uh, even for yourself, I, until you uh, until you arrive at that uh, field of enlightenment, uh, where you can look at yourself as if in a third person. There's, you know, you're not going to be angry or or feel guilty. There's, you know, we all. If you can live a life without regrets, you live the perfect life, as far as I'm concerned, in this life. So if you get to a certain point, you can see it, but you cannot intrude on someone else uh sometimes people have come this is a fact uh businessman used to come and he used to shake my hand after the readings he'd pay karen the 50 dollars and he'd slip 50 dollars in my hand and say that's for you and give me a wink every time he came i used to look forward to those handshakes oh, man. he he came and he asked me about his number one competitor and i wouldn't answer him mm. me, meaning the source and when after he said that was the worst reading i've ever had uh, you wouldn't answer my questions. So I'm thinking, there goes that 50 bucks. <laughs> and then he spilled the beans and he said, you see a lot of people, and it's true. I see many people from many levels of society, business, politics, uh, different titles, uh, princesses, baroness, etc. cetera. Uh, and he said, I just wanted to make sure that if somebody came in here and started asking uh, you about me, what you would say. And now I complete confidence that uh, you won't tell them anything. And I said, well, of course not, because uh, the readings often, when that happens, will say, this is an intrusion upon the welfare of this other person, and we won't go any further. All right. So uh, there, Douglas, there's, an, there's an integrity, Richard. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell, uh, the new book is Conversations with the Akashic Field and available at Barnes & Noble, and you can go to the website. Uh, douglasjamescottrell.com and listeners to this program can receive a, a special discount. Alright, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. It's a pleasure talking to you. I wish much success for you. God bless you, Richard. Take All care. Right. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is next with our monthly Paranormal News Roundup right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? Hi, Richard. Well, I'm uh, in recovery from Halloween. It's always a busy time of year for me, and Joe and I were up in Salem again uh, as we are every year, but um, still have a few events on the road uh, ahead of me and uh, always new book projects to start. I'll bet, I'll bet. Well, thank you for spending some time with us as we begin our uh, our monthly routine, our paranormal news roundup. And I want to talk about something I know you're very interested in. Uh, likewise, I've, I've always been fascinated by doppelgangers. And, of course, you know, they, they always uh, say, the old saying is that everyone has a doppelganger. Uh, there's no necessarily any sort of paranormal meaning to that. It just means that there is someone who looks like you out there, uh, and with seven billion souls on the planet, that stands to reason. Uh, but an interesting article in uh, Mysterious Universe uh, about the shadowy world of real doppelgangers. Tell us about that. Well, this is a topic that may not have one explanation, but 
a number of explanations. I've done quite a bit of research on doppelgangers, and uh, yes, it could be said that just through pure physical genetics, we probably have people on this planet, each and every one of us. There are other individuals who resemble us, but doppelgangers are exact duplicates of someone, and they have uh, kind of a uh, quasi-physical um, it, property to them. Um, there have been cases of people walking through do- doppelgangers and um, these doubles just appearing suddenly and disappearing su- suddenly, and they fall into different patterns. There's uh, folklore about doppelgangers that goes uh, back in centuries, and it's always been considered bad luck to see your own double. Uh, it's a harbinger of, of death, usually within a year. And there are cases on record where people have seen their own doubles, even multiple times, and then within a few weeks or months, uh, they do die. But there are other cases where uh, people uh, uh, project their their own doubles or their doubles get projected somehow. Sometimes it seems to be unwittingly. And nothing bad happens to them. Um, people have seen their own doubles, and even talked to their own doubles. And so, uh, you know, what's going on here? Well, it could be a case of uh, some sort of uh, ability of an individual um, to project an astral duplicate of oneself. And uh, when we die from this plane, uh, it is said that uh, the soul uh, travels in, in the astral double it separates from the body, and that's what travels into the afterlife. And uh, so in cases where people who are about to die, this may be the case, as if there might be some sort of spontaneous early uh, projection uh, of the double in preparation for that. Some people seem to be able to project their doubles at will, and there have been cases on the record uh, where individuals have made that claim and even done demonstrations of it. Like bilocation? Is that what we're talking about? It, um, it would be a form of bilocation. When it is deliberate, uh, an individual has a sense of where they're going and what they're doing. But in an unconscious projection, um, many people are not aware that they're double is out there doing things, hmm. uh, and it may be seen in distant locations by other people who uh, think that they're in, in place B when, in fact, the uh, the actual person is in um, place A. We've talked about on the show, you and I, Rosemary, about uh, the, the, the night just a few days after my father was laid to rest, uh, where I saw my doppelganger hovering above my body as I was uh, lying in bed, and um, I'm wondering maybe that was my astral body that, uh, you know, an out-of-body experience, but I caught a glimpse of my astral body because obviously that that can happen in a very stressful situation. It can. When people are under a great deal, especially of emotional stress, we we can have these projections. And uh, I think that there are cases on the record that that demonstrate that. Uh, And sometimes when people are... uh, ill for a long period of time, they may um, experience their double as well. And then then there's another explanation that's been put forward uh, that holds that these doubles really aren't a piece of human beings at all, but they're a masquerade by spirits. And this is a very plausible explanation, too, because uh, there are entities, uh, usually dark ones, like certain demonic entities or uh, the jinn, who are capable of taking on uh, almost any form they seem to choose. Uh, They often masquerade as ghosts of the dead, and so it's 
plausible that they could masquerade as a double of a living person. And for what purpose? Uh, well, these entities seem to like to pester people, and uh, they have a trickster quality to them. It may be for nothing more than uh, sport or to drain someone of, of energy. There was a, a famous case of a French teacher, um, I think it was from the 19th century, where um, uh, she had uh, numerous projections of her double. Her students could see her. This caused a great deal of um, discomfort and at uh, places where she worked, and she didn't, wasn't able to hold on to a job very long. Uh, and um, she always said that she felt um, tired uh, when these projections happened, and, and sometimes she could see her, see her own double. Her students said that uh, some of her students were able to make physical contact with her double, and they said they could pass through it and felt like kind of thick fabric. So if this was an entity masquerading as her, um, the effect would be to vampirize her energy or life force. All right, we've got to, um, we've got to take a time out, Rosemary. When we come back, a medical student walks into a pub and disappears. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Oh, hey, Jackie, I put the file on the server, so feel free to download, and I want... Just did. I literally just sent it. Yep, got it. With Rogers Ignite for Business, you get faster upload, download, and file sharing speeds, so you can get down to business faster. So what you're going to see is if you... Love it. Love what? All of it. But I had a whole setup and everything. For more details on Rogers Ignite for Business Internet plans starting at $59.99 a month on a guaranteed two-year term, visit rogers.com slash ignitebusiness. Get ready for the most impressive a cappella performance to ever hit the stage at Niagara Falls View Casino. January 25th to 29th, experience amazing vocal sounds, singing, and modern beatbox, all without instruments or special effects. Visit fallsviewcasinoresort.com for tickets. Voca People, January 25th to 29th, live at Niagara Falls View Casino. Imagine Mexico's Riviera Maya at your doorstep. Charisma Hotels and Resorts and Transat can place it there in a swim-up suite. Everything you could want at Charisma Hotels and Resorts. We've imagined. Unlimited access to gourmet restaurants without reservations. A beach butler. A sommelier. Make your stay in Mexico extra special with Charisma's gourmet inclusive experience. It's winter reimagined. Book now at transat.com. Oh, the stuff you hear about when Paul Kenny and his son Bogart take to the radio. We can't predict who's going to call in or the stuff they have to sell. But we guarantee one thing, stuff happens on Consignment Heroes. Be listening to Zuma Radio this Sunday at 1. And come meet the stars of Storage Wars Canada at their Richmond Hill store. Toronto Gold, Silver and Coins. It's where Paul and Bogart buy and sell gold and silver at today's top prices. Get a quote now. Call 905-737-GOLD or visit torontogoldsilver.com. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. 
We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator extraordinaire, and uh, her website is visionaryliving.com. Visionaryliving.com. Get on up to her uh, her bookstore there on the website. And uh, my gosh, uh, I have lost count, but there is uh, approaching, I believe, 70 books that she has uh, written. And uh, let's um, w w uh, talk about, it started off, it sounds like an April Fool's joke. It took place on April Fool's, but uh, a medical student, I believe, from Ohio State uh, walked into a, into a pub and proceeded to, well, vanish. Just disappeared into thin air. And uh, this happened in 2006, and this individual has still been missing. There's no good explanation for what happened to him. This is a story that kind of hits a little close to home um, to me, too, Richard, because I'm in Columbus, Ohio, several times a year. And uh, I certainly hope that there's no mysterious uh, time warp places where you could fall into a, a, a trap door into another reality, which may be what happened to this young man. Uh, he was a student. He was in his late 20s. He goes to a bar called the Ugly Tuna on April Fool's Day with two friends. He has plans with his girlfriend uh, to uh, shortly after that to take off for, for a vacation on spring break. And the surveillance cameras show him and his two friends going into the bar, his two friends at the end of the evening leave. In fact, everybody who went into the bar is accounted for going out of the bar on the surveillance cameras, except this young man. He just disappears. His, they find his car parked in his driveway at home. His uh, apartment is empty. There's no sign of him. And nobody knows what happened to him. Uh, there, there was speculation that uh, maybe he took off, uh, maybe he decided just to um, drop everything and, and uh, get away from everything, but there was nothing going on in his life that would indicate that um, he was unhappy with things. His father tried to find him and then uh, died tragically. Uh, his brother kept working with the police trying to find him. No clues turned up. I think this fits into uh, one of these um, uh, missing 411 kinds of cases where right. pe people just vanish without explanation. Yeah, David Politis. Uh, this is uh, definitely a case f uh, f for, uh, for him. Uh, and uh, I think that there are these, uh, these openings between realities. He, m he might have gone into a, a missing time uh, sort of thing where he, he fell through one of these interdimensional openings um, and he might be in a, another reality or even another time frame. We've, we've had cases of um, uh, missing time and people from other time periods sort of mysteriously appearing and then disappearing. Uh, and that may be what what happened uh, to this young man. The friends, there were, I guess, three of them in the uh, in the, uh, the in the pub, and they they just sort of momentarily lost track of them. They they checked the men's room, uh, nothing. And then the uh, police in uh, is it Columbus? Columbus, uh, Ohio. The, as you mentioned, the police, and this is uh, Brian Schaefer, 27. Um, they 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 looked at the video surveillance, and they saw him come in. Uh, he didn't leave though, and they, they apparently there was a second uh, the second floor this pub was on, and uh, I think there was a there was a, uh, a surveillance camera pointed at the escalator as well, and they looked at the escalator camera. Nothing. I mean, 
he obviously he he couldn't have left; otherwise, they would have found him on the on the videotape. There was speculation that he might have been murdered, and there were cruel hoaxes phoned into the police and the family as well that uh, he had been murdered and cut up into pieces and. Um, there were jokes played on the family after the father died. Uh, someone hoaxed a, a condolence uh, under Brian's name, supposedly from the Virgin Islands. That was a hoax. But no evidence pointing to anything. The bar got very crowded. His friends lost track of him. And they just figured they'd catch up with him at some point. But he, he just simply disappeared. So I, some people might even speculate, well, was he abducted by uh, aliens or some other uh, kind of entity? I don't think there's any indication of that. There uh, don't seem to be any correlating reports of unusual UFO activity at the time. Um, there would also be other kinds of phenomena happening if, if uh, that were the case. And uh, there may have been just something in his consciousness um, and maybe that bar sits uh, in some kind of strange energy, interdimensional uh, area where he slipped through an interdimensional or time crack. Well, you, you've studied uh, these, these portals uh, up and down the Hudson Valley, for example. Uh, what about the Ohio Valley? What about Columbus? Uh, is the, is, this, is there, are there any other stories like this from that area? Well, uh, Ohio is a heavily haunted state, and I have investigated an, a number of weird cases uh, around Columbus, Dayton, and Cincinnati, and uh, some of them involve um, mysterious appearing and disappearing figures like uh, hooded figures. Um, there have been um, uh, a lot of hauntings. There have been uh, dogmen sightings. And uh, this bar is, uh, there's a river that goes uh, through town, and um, river areas uh, sometimes have a lot of strange activity around them. It's not, um, it, it's not a wildly energetic river, um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, we do find an, an increase in odd phenomena around uh, large rivers and large bodies of water. So um, my feeling is uh, about Ohio is that um, it is an area of, of strange occurrences. I have not heard of anything quite like this, however. Uh, Columbus does have more than its fair share of haunted areas, uh, and uh, some of the highways, there are mysterious phenomena reported on the, in, in the more rural areas uh, on, on the highways. So it, uh, it falls into a larger mix of... Uh, unexplained phenomena. Yeah, this is a real head-scratcher, uh, to be sure, and a tragedy, uh, because he's, he's simply gone. Brian Schaefer, a medical student, had his whole life ahead of him, 27, and uh, simply vanished after walking into a pub uh, in Columbus, Ohio, uh, 10 years ago this past April Fools. Uh, from Ohio to Atlanta, uh, where a 16-year-old uh, has made headlines uh, this past week after waking up from a coma speaking fluent Spanish. Tell me about it. Another very bizarre case. Uh, now, uh, this young man's name is Ruben, and um, he had studied a little bit of Spanish, um, but he suffered a concussion at a soccer game, and uh, when he woke up, 
he couldn't speak English, but he could speak Spanish very fluently, far more than he had ever learned. And uh, over the course of weeks, this weird uh, transposition of languages started to reverse and fade. His ability to speak the Spanish fluently uh, started to go, and he was able to recover uh, more of his ability to speak English. There have been other cases like this where people have had severe head trauma and brain injury, and when they have recovered consciousness, they're speaking another language. Now, in most of these cases, uh, they've had some knowledge of the second language they're suddenly wildly fluent in. Um, They have not learned it to the extent where they uh, could speak it fluently, however. And so uh, scientists speculate that uh, something must happen to the brain uh, under a severe trauma that um, maybe opens up um, an unusual ability in aphasia that um, it's called uh, the foreign accent syndrome, where uh, people suddenly are able to start speaking uh, a language that they have not mastered. Well, that I've but, heard but about. Temporary. That I've heard about. Sure. An accent is one thing. Uh, but to be able to speak, and, and as you mentioned, uh, Ruben, young Ruben, um, had some Spanish knowledge, but to speak it like a native uh, is, I mean, I, I don't know how you can explain that, um, you know, scientifically. The other thing that he mentioned was that when he tried to speak English after he woke up from a coma, uh, he would start to suffer a seizure. And that was very odd, too. There there might be a couple of things going on, and um, that, one, um, all of these people had at least some rudimentary knowledge of the language that they were suddenly uh, greatly fluent in. And so we can speculate that, well, if you're learning a foreign language, um, especially if you're in an immersion sort of process, that you might be exposed to more of that language than you have actually mastered, and that uh, this uh, head trauma suddenly opens up a capability of the brain to access that. Um, I think that in some of these cases, there's a past life explanation. Um, And it's related, it's not exactly the same as this, but it is related that there have been cases called xenoglossy, where uh, people have uh, gone through a a serious illness, um, especially if it's put them into a coma, they've had a, a head trauma again. Head trauma also has been linked to cases where people have suddenly become very psychic after recovery from that trauma. And in cases of xenoglossy, however, they're speaking an unknown language, a language that they have no knowledge of that then uh, in many cases can be traced back to um, a possible past life. So there may be some overlap going on here. There was also a case uh, out, out in California, I believe. It was a gentleman who was accosted, uh, uh, throttled, in fact, hit his, uh, thrown down to the ground, hit his head on the cement curb, was in a coma. When he woke up, he became a brilliant mathematician. He, everywhere he looked, he saw fractals and, and uh, mathematical equations. Do you remember that story? Um, I'm not familiar with that story, but I have heard other stories of, of people having head trauma and then suddenly something breaks open for them, a skill, a skill or knowledge. And, you know, they say that we only, the scientists say we only use a fraction of our, our, our brain potential. And maybe something like a serious head trauma uh, allows the brain to access 
other areas where we might even be tapping into a collective consciousness, like learned skills and knowledge possessed by, you know, the global mind that suddenly become available to us when uh, psychic uh, some sort of psychic connection opens up. It's fascinating. Just to have a, a, a little over a minute and a half here, and uh, I want to talk to you about these archaeologists in Poland uh, who say they have uncovered the skeletal remains of a giantess, a female giant. Over seven feet tall, seven uh, foot two, and her skeleton dates to the 12th to the 14th century. Um, when she was uh, found in her burial site, she was buried differently from the the people around her, and um, all of them had uh, uh, their skeletons placed facing west, for example. She was facing east, indicating that, that perhaps she was considered to be um, unwanted or odd or um, something very unusual about her not fitting in. And, of course, at seven foot two, that would be considered a giant. Well, there are cases where people... Uh, grow to giant proportions when they have dysfunctions of the pituitary gland, and she certainly seemed to have had a lifetime of illness and injury and, and difficulties from her size, uh, according to the, the damage left to her skeleton. But, uh, you know, ancient reports, and including um, information in the Bible, indicate that giants once walk the planet, and that these might be tied to some sort of alien races that were here, alien beings. And so could this woman have been uh, one of those individuals? Uh, judging from the way she was buried, she it sounds like she was an outsider to her own people. Rosemary, always a pleasure. And uh, again, we direct people to the website, visionaryliving.com. Rosemary joins us once a month for our Paranormal News Roundup. We'll talk to you next month. Thank you, Richard. Good night now. Good night. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.